How's everybody doing? Hoping you're having a fantastic day. So what this stream is going to be is this is my first video in my new course on the really the attributes of God minus the uh, how we know and name God. I'm going to do something separate on that because I want to go into a lot of detail about uh, certain select topics on analogy uh, during that one. So this is going to be everything through uh, question three to question 11 of the Summa. That's what I'll be covering here. Um, today is just going to be more of an introductory thing, uh, kind of picking up on a few uh, beginning points that St. Thomas doesn't explicitly cover, uh, but are kind of always implicitly present throughout De Deo Uno, which is uh, I'll be referring to uh the study of the uh, of God considered uh, in in his essence as de deo uno, uh, as opposed to considering God as um, uh, as he is in his triune uh, triunity. So, what what this is going to be is this is basically how we kind of get from proving God's existence to beginning to cover his attributes. So right now we're going to be covering the essence, nature, and then attributes of God in general. Um, and then I should finish the course within, I'm thinking probably, Lord willing, within three to four weeks is when I'll be done uh, this first one. Uh, maybe, maybe shorter than that, depending on how much time I have uh, to prepare videos and such. But just be on the lookout uh, if you're interested in studying this topic. Uh, for looking for the course, for uh, reading recommendations, uh, definitely check out uh, Father Gary Goulagrange's God, His Existence, and Nature, and then also his commentary on the One God, um, uh, Grenier. Uh, he has his Thomistic philosophy. Um, he covers uh, the nat he covers natural theology there, uh, but it's very Thomistic trying to think of any other books. Oh, Woodbury, all of his uh, works are good, although they're not too accessible, uh, which I'm trying to work on. But that's generally, if you want to research this topic uh, and you just read the section of the Summa along with uh, Lagrange's commentary, you should be, you should be more than prepared uh, for sure. So let us get right into it. So first, uh, kind of as a point of prologue for what we're going to be talking about, uh, the term essence. Uh, by the term essence, all all we're going to be uh, all, all we're going to be signifying by this term essence is really uh, is really going to be twofold. Uh, it, generally speaking, it's going to be that which constitutes a thing. And I know that's very very broad. That which constitutes a thing that can mean a lot of different uh, things. But classically, when we are talking about the essence of God, we're going to, we're going to distinguish uh, between two different types of essences. And I'm using types uh, very broadly. First, we can think about God as he exists in himself. This is going to be the so-called physical essence of God. And second, we can consider uh, God as he is known by us. And that's going to be the so-called metaphysical essence of God. Thus, with the metaphysical essence, that is God as he is known by us, 
we're going to be able to distinguish between what's called the essence and then what's called the attributes of God. The, uh, the essence is going to be uh, really the root and foundation from which flow all of the attributes, just like we would think of the essence of man as his rationality. And then we have a bunch of uh, really his rational animality. And then from that flow, all of his uh, various perfections, such as his risibility, that is his ability to laugh, his ability to talk, his ability to uh, discursively reason. A lot of uh, all of our perfections, that is our attributes, flow from our essence. And in an analogous way, actually, we're going to have a single perfection, which we're going to point to as the metaphysical essence of God as that perfection from which flows all of the other perfections. And then, uh, again, we can distinguish also between the uh, metaphysical essence in the broad sense, and then we can also think of it in the narrow sense. In the broad sense, we're going to be uh, speak, thinking about how all of the various perfections of God flow from the single perfection. But in the uh, narrow sense, we could look at the divine operation. Are there any... Uh, operative attributes of God, which stand out amongst the rest as the foundation. And this is going to get us into a few uh, intratomous debates. So uh, generally speaking, the way in which I'm going to organize this is going to be between first God's essence in the concrete, that is God's essence in itself, which is going to be the physical essence of God. And then second, it's going to be God's essence in the abstract, the so-called uh, metaphysical essence of God. And then further, we can distinguish his metaphysical essence between his um, essence in general and then the operation in particular. So just fancy little chart down there. So first, as I said, the physical essence. So as I already said, the physical essence is really going to be the essence of God as it exists in the concrete. And the way in which the tradition has defined uh, what the physical essence of God is, is the deity as possessing formally and in an infinite degree all the absolute perfections in its sovereign simplicity. That's the physical essence of God. Basically, the deity... Uh, possessing formally all absolute perfections, infinite degree in a sovereign simplicity. So obviously the physical essence of God uh, in its exalted state, um, in its sovereign simplicity, we're not going to be able to uh, penetrate that with our weak intellects. But um, kind of defining all of the terms that we're using there, because there's a lot of technical terminology going on in that definition. By deity, we're going to be referring to the divine essence itself rather than uh, the per a personal term such as God, and God uh, actually uh, more narrowly refers to one who possesses the deity. And then by sovereign simplicity, we're going to be talking about the lack of any uh, sort of composition uh, between all of the perfections. The composition is not in God. The composition exists uh, really due to our imperfection in the consideration of God, but we're going to be getting into that later, and especially um, when we go over Q, 12, and 13 in Prima Pars. So when it comes to the absolute perfections, uh, the absolute perfections are those perfections that uh, do not formally denote defect in their formal concepts. So we've went over this a little bit before uh, when it comes to the existence of God, but things like being, truth, goodness, beauty, uh, intelligence, those are all absolute perfections. <clears throat> 
we can think of an infinite beauty. We can think of an infinite truth. We can think of an infinite goodness without any sort of imperfection implied because all of the imperfection that's present in beautiful things has to do with the uh, subject that's participating in that perfection. It doesn't have to do with any defect in the notion itself. Whereas if we think of other things like cupness, cupness, there's obviously a certain degree of perfection in cupness or else it wouldn't exist. But we, we can't think of an infinite cup. What would an infinite cup look like? Because there, by the very notion of cupness, there is a certain defect. Uh, there's a certain imperfection. There's a certain limitation which is present there. Cups are material. Uh, that's a certain limitation which is present. So God does not contain in a formal and infinite degree the perfection present in the notion of cupness because it's a, what's called a mixed perfection. In its notion, there's a certain imperfection present not only in the mode of its existence. Whereas with the absolute perfections, intelligence, uh, goodness, truth, being, beauty, all of these uh, absolute perfections, really everything we're going to be considering uh, throughout this uh, in entire series, all of the uh, absolute perfections, he possesses them first formally, and formally means he doesn't merely cause it, but he actually has it. And then second, to an infinite degree. So we just remove the limit to it, and God possesses it. So uh, as I repeat it, the physical essence of God is the deity as possessing formally, so he has it not causally, but in himself, and in an infinite degree, all the absolute perfections, so not the mixed perfections, the absolute perfections in its sovereign simplicity. That is without any sort of composition in it in itself, but only in our intellects. So that's what we're going to be defending uh, for what the physical essence of God is. So, and I already went over, uh, but going back actually to the mixed perfections. So we say that, and then uh, Jack, I see you in the chat, but sorry, I'm not going to be able able to answer that in this stream uh so you could you could probably just message uh that to me and i'll explain or uh something else but this usually isn't for for questions so on the on the mixed perfections so there's perfections like cupness that we talked about that have some sort of imperfection not only in the mode but in the notion we can't say that god possesses them formally we can't say that god possesses them uh in, in uh, God isn't uh, formally a cup. He doesn't have the form of cupness. He doesn't uh, have he doesn't have cupness in himself. God isn't the infinite cup. No, of course not. Rather, he possesses it uh, said to be virtually and eminently. So he still possesses these perfections because there's still perfections present, but they are virtually and eminently. So virtually, that means he has the power to cause it. He possesses it in uh he he possesses it in that he is able to bring it about so he virtually possesses the perfection of cupness he's able to bring about cups and second he possesses it eminently so god possesses it in an elevated mode so he possesses it in a, a more perfect degree of existence so we're not going to be able to think of this in terms of cupness. Uh, that would be a very difficult thing to imagine. But think about it, uh, for example, reasoning. 
reasoning is actually something which is a mixed perfection because reasoning implies mutability because we're going from premise to conclusion. But God eminently possesses the perfection of reasoning because God is intelligent. So God's intelligence has all of the perfection which is present in, in reasoning, but without all of the imperfections present in the notion. And therefore, we not only say that it's in an elevated mode, but it's also in a uh, purified notion. So God knows by a simple act of his intellect a truth which we know by the mixed perfection of reasoning. So uh, when it comes to uh, the adversaries to this thesis, because uh, by now you should, uh, you should, after having explained to you, uh, recognize that this is uh, really just common sense uh, given fancy terms. So some uh, say that God does not have perfections formally. They only say that God has perfections causally. Unfortunately, a lot of people think this is what St. Thomas teaches, but he doesn't. God thinks that the pure perfections among creatures are possessed by God formally, not merely causatively. And this is uh, Moses, my, um, I can never pronounce his name, Rabbi Moses. Uh, uh, he was a Jewish philosopher and basically a proto-agnostic, but he says that God does not have the perfections formally, but only causatively. So God is called good because he causes good. God is called truth because he causes truth. God is called beauty because he causes he causes beauty. And then on the other hand, you have some that say that God only has the perfections metaphorically. This is going to be the agnostics. And then also uh, certain nominalists uh, kind of wave between uh, these two. So uh, when it comes to proving this, so there's three ways in which we can prove this. Oh, actually, two ways in which we can prove this. Sorry. So the first way is going to be from God is pure act. Because what it means for uh, something to be pure act is to not give way to any sort of limitation. So if something's pure act, it has no potency. So no limitation to the perfection of its entity. Now, if something has no limitation to the perfection of its entity, it's going to possess formally and in, all, uh, in an infinite degree all the absolute perfections. So uh, by something being pure act, it's going to be uh, it's going to be this definition. It's going to bring forth this definition of physical essence that we've already uh, brought forth, because for something to be perfect means that it doesn't have any limitation to its entity. Now, if something is pure act, that means in all ways it does not have any sort of limitation to its entity. Therefore, it's going to be something which is infinitely perfect if it's something which is purely actual. And the second way, uh, we can prove this from God as subsistent being. Uh, from all of the five ways, we have already arrived at the idea of God as subsistent being. God as being ipsum esse. Uh, God as uh, having his existence as his essence. So from uh, what we've already proven, that God is subsistent being, uh, we are going to be able to prove that God, that this definition of uh, of of physical essence, because for uh, reasons that actually we've already covered, especially in the fourth way, because when we look at all perfections, at least all formal perfections, 
all formal perfections are in some way going to be an aspect or a relation of being. You can read about this more in uh, De Veritate, Question 1, Article 1, where St. Thomas talks about this in terms of truth and goodness and thing and otherness and all of that, all of that fun stuff in intellect and will. So all of the transcendentals are really what the four of the formal perfections are. So we can think of uh, if God is subsistent being, then uh, he also must be subsistent goodness, subsistent truth, subsistent goodness, uh, sorry, subsistent beauty, subsistent intellect, subsistent love, uh, subsistent justice. He must, he must be all of, all of these things. He must be all of these things if he is subsistent being. So this kind of brings about, uh, as a conclusion, what we have already been uh, trying to prove. So as two uh, corollaries, and we're going to be corollaries. Corollary. Is it corollaries or is it corollaries? I've never heard somebody say it, but I have I think it's corollaries. So when it comes to the first one, it's going to be about the uh, so-called three ways. So the three ways are going to be thinking about how we go from looking at a created perfection to attributing this perfection to God. So if I'm out, uh, let's say, on my back porch having my evening cigarette, and I'm watching the beautiful sunset, I contemplate beauty as existing in uh, a certain created thing. And I recognize, okay, that's a perfection. It's better for this sunset to have beauty than for it not to have beauty. Now, how do I go from a contemplation of beauty in this sunset to beauty as it exists in God? So first, what you need to do is you need to consider, uh, you first need to uh, consider God as first cause. So we've already went over this in, in the existence of God, in the, uh, in the series on that. But because God is first cause, he must have, in a certain degree, the perfection found in the creature. Because you cannot uh, give what you do not have. That is a fundamental principle of metaphysics. So God cannot give uh, these certain perfections if he himself does not have that perfection. So first, we actually begin by affirming. So we affirm that God has beauty, at least causatively. So we look at the beautiful sunset. We say, okay, God has that because God causes that. And second, we consider the imperfection which is present in the mode in which it exists. So I look at that sunset, and I say, okay, that sunset could get more beautiful. That sunset could get less beautiful. Therefore, that sunset has beauty in a mutable way. And therefore, that sunset has beauty in a in a participated way now if something has something participated it doesn't have it essentially in itself therefore it's composed it's composite and therefore there is imperfection in the mode in which that of uh, that perfection exists so we need to negate that so god does not have beauty as that sunset does in an imperfect mode on the contrary god has beauty in a perfect mode so this section in in the second way we not only affirm it 
We negate it. We negate all of the imperfections. And then in the third way, we take that purified notion after we have kind of bleached the created concept of all of its imperfections and we remove the limitation from the purified concept and we elevate it. So again, the three ways. We look at it and we affirm the perfection, we negate the imperfections, and then we elevate the result in perfection. And give me just one minute. I need to go and grab my computer charger. Okay, sorry, I'm back. Okay, where were we now? We were, okay, so next, I need to take a drink of water real quick. Next uh, is is analogy. Uh, so just quickly, because we're going to cover this in a lot more detail uh, at a later point. But all analogy is, is something which stands in a certain way between that language which is univocal, so that language which uh, is predicated in exactly the same sense. So I am a man and my father is a man. A man is used in exactly the same sense. And then standing uh, between that and then equivocal, uh, which is language that has no connection whatsoever uh, except the mere verbal notion. So this would be like... Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of an example of purely equivocal language. Oh, um, buttermilk and butterfly. Uh, the I, I don't think the butter has any sort of connection uh, in buttermilk, and then also in butterfly. Uh, so, analogy just means something which stands between uh, those two. Uh, again, we're going we're, we're being very. Um, Short with this, uh, we can talk about Scotus's position and everything like that later. But uh, specifically, uh, we're talking here of what's called an analogy of proper proportionality. So the difference between uh, the perfection as existing in God and the perfection as existing in creature is one of proportion. So they exist in different modes, uh, yet they retain the same proper uh, concept. So just very broad. Uh, that's going to be the type of analogy in which we're going to be talking about. Uh, 
throughout uh, when we compare the perfections as present God and the perfections as present in the creature. But again, hold your horses because uh, in a, I think probably a few weeks I'll be covering this. And I'm definitely going to make that video public because everybody wonders about analogy. So now moving on, let me put the slide up. So the metaphysical essence. So we've talked about the, the physical essence, which is going to be the collection of all of the uh, pure perfections in the sovereign simplicity of God in an infinite mode. But that's all fine and dandy. God is considered in himself. But how do we know God? What, what is the way in which uh, we consider God? So that's going to be uh, the metaphysical essence of God, God as he is known in us. And then within the metaphysical essence, within our consideration of the divine perfections, we, we can consider two aspects. So first, we can consider the essence, and second, we consider the properties. So this would be like uh, when it comes to my metaphysical essence as a man, my essence is my rational animality. So the fact that I'm a rational animal. And then those properties which flow from my essence would be like my risibility. That is my ability to laugh. It flows from my rationality and my animality. Yet uh, my risibility uh, is, not some, is not an essential note uh, since it draws its existence from another. But in God, similarly, we can think of that one thing which grounds all the rest of the perfections. And uh, there's going to be a few uh, notes to this, this one perfection. And uh, all of you, I'm sure, are on the edge of your seats wondering, what is this perfection? But it's going to uh, suffice first in order that there be God. So this is going to be kind of the, uh, I guess you could say, um, I don't like this language, but the epistemic root. So when we when we consider this, it suffices um, that it that it be God. So it's going to properly constitute the divinity qua the divinity, and then it's also going to first distinguish God from things that are not God. So it's going to be something which God uh, definitively has. Uh, that distinguishes him uh, from all other beings. And then it's uh, third, it's going to be that which forms the root of all of the perfections. So in in grasping this uh, this thing, we're going to be able to draw from this thing all of the other perfections of God. So, uh, and, and I uh, have this, illustration here from Father Woodbury that I actually really love. He says, when we consider man, we find that he is rational, animal, talky, laughy, grammatical, progressive, inventive, social, political, etc. Each of these things is man conceived in a certain way. But there is one of these necessary characteristics of man that first suffices when it is had, that man be had, and which first distinguishes man from things that are not man. Though each of these things suffices that man be had, and each distinguishes man from things that are not man. And from which, as from a fountain or root, all of the others flow. This primary characteristic of man is rational animal. Rational animals, man conceived in the primary way. Talky, laughy, progressive, inventive, social, etc. are man conceived in secondary or subsequent ways. Therefore, we say that man's essence is rational animal. 
whereas talky, laughy, etc., are the properties of man. So what is this? What is this in God? What is this in God? What is the metaphysical essence, properly speaking, in God? What is that root of all of the rest? Well, for Scotus, and he's wrong about this, and we're gonna we're gonna see why. For Scotus, he says that it is infinite being. Infinite being. But for Thomas, Thomas has a different answer. And this is going to be that uh place that terminus to which all of the proofs for the existence of God are going to reach. So we see actually a certain uh, certain beauty in this, a certain harmony in the Thomistic synthesis when it comes to the uh, the doctrine of God. As we go in all of our five ways and reach the single point, and then from the single point, we are going to have that f- uh, from which uh, we take uh, and move on to all of the other attributes. It's going to be that root of all of the other attributes. What is that? Well, for the Thomist, it's going to be subsisting being. Subsisting being. That is the being whose existence is essential. So, God as subsisting being, uh, the being to which uh, existence is essential, a pure act, all of these, they have the same formal signification. Uh, all, all of these uh, signify basically a being who uh, is essentially existent or existentially essential or whatever or whatever you want to say. That being that subsists uh, not from any other, but in himself. The being which is being by essence, not being by participation, as all created things. So if we thought, for example, if we look all around us, we see uh, when we consider whiteness, everything around us has white in a participated manner. So it's white ab alia, white from another. So I look at a white pillow, I look at a white blanket, I look at a white wall, I look at a white door. All of those things have white by participation. None of those things have whiteness in itself. So when we look all around us, we see uh, that pillow, that blanket, that door, that wall, all of those things, they're all beings. But do they have being from itself, being by itself? No, of course not. It has being from another. Its being is dependent on God. It's uh, really, uh, it, its being flows from God. But God, on the other hand, God does not have being participated to him by some other, but being in himself and by himself. So that that is that essential predicate which uh, cuts God off all from the rest. And all of the other perfections can flow from this. Because as we've already talked about, this should make sense to you from some of the considerations we've had before in the existence of God. And then also uh, earlier, even in the same lesson. That we see all of the transcendental perfections, all of those uh, formal perfections, truth, goodness, intelligence, all of those formal perfections are really just somehow aspects or relations to being. So if we consider God and we, we think of God and we see that he is subsisting being, what else is going to flow from this? Well, being, all being is in some sense 
unified because um, unity is a transcendental. So therefore, we conclude from that that God is simple. All being, insofar as it is being, is true. So we see that God is truth itself. All being, insofar as it is being, is good. So we see that God is goodness itself. Being has a transcendental relation to intelligence. So subsisting being is going to be subsisting intelligence. And so on and so forth. Because from intelligence, we can we can derive all of the various in, uh, intelligent perfections. So uh, things like prudence. So from prudence, we're going to be able to draw that God's providence over all of creation. So what do we see here? We see that there is one attribute that stands above all of the rest from which all of the other flow. And Thomas throughout De Deo Uno is going to draw forth all of these perfections for us from this one perfection. Thomas is Thomas is a genius at this. He's brilliant at this. He has set forth all of these in, in a sort of perfect harmony. All the way from question two, in the existence of God, from the existence of God, he's going to prove self-subsisting being. Then from self-subsisting self being, he's going to take forth all of the perfections throughout the rest of the entirety of De Deo Uno. Do we even need anything else besides uh, the Summa? Probably not. But, uh, but let's continue. So what is, what is the proof of this? What is the proof of this? Well, we can look at all of the uh, various attributes of what it means for something to be the metaphysical essence of God. First, it's going to distinguish most properly God from creatures. So the creature is composed by a real composition of essence and existence. What does it mean uh, to be a creature? Well, really, uh, creatureliness is going to be identified with a real composition of essence and existence. That is, it has some sort of, um, you could say, contingency to it. Its its existence is going to be given to it. That's what it means for something to be a creature. That, that Fundamentally, that's what it means. But when we think of God as self-subsisting being, there is not going to be this real composition of essence and existence. Because God's essence is going to be his existence. There's going to be no composition in God. God's existence does not come from another. Rather, it's essential to him. So this is going to most properly distinguish God from creatures, that he is self, self-subsisting being. Second, subsisting being serves as the root of all of the perfections. We've already, we've basically already went over this to show how ev basically everything in De Deo Uno is going to be traced back to God as self-subsisting being. Third, subsisting being transcends all other perfections and uh, this can be uh, really shown from the from the fact that every perfection that exists is only going to be an existent perfection insofar as it is related to uh, being and then fourth we can actually derive this exegetically so we look at the divine name if you remember uh, Moses, when Moses asks what God's name is, what does God answer? God answers that he is, I am. And of course, from this comes the Tetragrammaton, the, the four-lettered name that we don't say uh, out loud. The, the divine name is going to signify I am, or I am who am. 
And that in some, in some sense is going to signify subsistent being. I am to subsistent being is a very, uh, is a very easy jump because you look at what I am is I am is going to be, um, really the, uh, the copula in the first person singular I am being is really just going to be the, um, why can't I think of the, why can't I think of the, uh, being is really just going to be a, a form of the, of the copula. Why can't, why can't I remember that off the top of my head? Dang, I'm really dumb right now. I'm trying to think. Hmm, let me look it up. Ah, it's a participle. That's, that's the word I was thinking of. Being is really just the participle of the copula. So I am to being. That's not really a jump at all. It's really just thinking about the a different form of the copula. The copula is the is is that's the copula. So I am in an absolute sense. I am who am uh, really uh, him saying I am being or or being is my uh, my existence is my essence, whatever it may be. We can prove this exegetically too. The divine name is that most proper, um, really that most proper uh, predication of the divine uh, of the divinity. So, let me continue. And again, Studio of Greatness, this is not Q&A, so I'm not going to be able to answer questions here. Just ask them in the Discord if you want. Uh, sorry. Okay. Oh, yeah. Refutation of SCOTUS. Ah, most important part of the whole stream. So, when it comes to, when it comes to SCOTUS's opinion, why... Why can't we say that uh, infinite being is the is the metaphysical essence of God? Besides, uh, when we looked at the physical essence of God, it's uh, infinite perfection. So why can't we say the metaphysical essence of God is infinite being? Well, when we think about what infinity is, infinity is going to be really a a mode of the divine being. It's really going to be the mode of the divine being. It's going to be a, a, a manner in which the divinity or the divine entity exists. So infinity is going to presuppose the divine entity already constituted. So if you're going to have something which presupposes another concept, then it's not going to be the root of all those perfections. So that is that is going to be the way in which uh, the way in which we uh, argue our disagreements with SCOTUS is because uh, really infinity is already going to presuppose subsistent being. Infinity flows from subsistent being. So continuing now thinking about the attributes, this is going to lead us into all of those fun uh, discussions when it comes to distinction, distinctions, distinctions, distinctions. So what are divine attributes? So divine attributes are absolute and pure perfections necessarily and formally existing in God that flow from the divine essence according to our way of understanding. So there's a lot of technical terminology in here. So first, 
the divine abs the divine attributes are absolute. So they're not relative to the persons. So technically, something like paternity is not a divine attribute because that's relative to the person of the father. Second, they are pure perfections. We've already already went over what pure perfections are, so I don't really need to explain uh, pure perfections. But uh, technically, when it comes to the mixed perfections, those are not divine attributes. Uh, so if we think about something like um, anger, anger or really any of the passions, those are mixed perfections. So they are, technically speaking, not divine attributes. So, sorry guys, God is not, uh, properly speaking, angry. It really is improper and metaphorical. Third, it's something which is necessary. So this is going to exclude those things that are contingent upon the divine will. So something like God as creator, God is not, uh, creator is not an attribute of God because God freely enters into uh, his creation. Further, it's something which is going to be formal. So it exists according to its proper character, not according to the ability or power to cause that perfection. We've already talked about what it means for it to be formal. And then lastly, it's going to be uh, flowing from the divine essence, according to our way of understanding. So uh, the metaphysical essence of God is not an attribute. Uh, God's subsistent being is not an attribute. Rather, we only refer to attributes, those things that flow from the metaphysical essence of God. So those things that flow from um, God as I am. Let us continue. So the first question that's going to come up, and probably the the all-pervading question uh, for the rest of mankind, well, mankind, the rest of time, is going to be concerning the distinction between the perfections and the essence of God. So how do we think about the relationship between God's mercy God's and God's goodness, or between God's justice and God's uh Infinity. How do, how do we think about the distinction between these things? So first we're going to need to define some terms, and then we're going to look at uh, the two uh, opinions that are opposed to one another. So first, uh, we're going to think we can have a distinction uh, that exists either in reality, apart from the mind, these are so-called objective distinctions, or I, I hate this term, but real distinction, because uh, real just seems like it means not fake, but trust me, it doesn't mean that. So the first are those ex things that exist in reality, apart from the mind, between different things. And second are going to be those which exist in the mind. So distinctions can either exist objectively, that is in reality, or subjectively, that is in the intellect. So things that exist subjectively can either exist purely in the mind. So uh, between, uh, let's say I say Cicero is Cicero. The difference between the subject and the predicate there, uh, they are the, that distinction exists purely in the mind. And second, we can have those things that exist fundamentally in the thing, 
So they have a foundation in the thing, but they have to be drawn out by the mind. The mind has to interact with the thing in order to distinguish uh, these two. And this would, uh, for example, be like the distinction between uh, the genus and species in the essence of a thing. So the difference between my rationality and my animality, that's going to be what's called a major virtual distinction. Or a distinction of reason, reasoned, or uh, just broadly speaking, a virtual distinction. Because the distinction between my animality and rationality, they're not like two separate things within me. That would be utterly ridiculous. Rather, uh, my mind in, in interacting with individual men is able to distinguish between the rationality uh, and the animality of that individual man. So uh, th those are really, uh, broadly speaking, the three types of distinctions. That is real, which means it exists in reality between things apart from the mind. And second, the uh, nominal distinction, which purely exists in the mind. And then third is going to be, uh, I like to call it the fundamental distinction, but you can call it a virtual distinction, distinction of reason, reason. Those are going to be the thing, uh, thing which exists between the various uh, formalities of the thing, which is really just uh, the interaction of the mind, uh, conceptually drawing out uh, differences which are not present before the consideration of the mind, but have a foundation in the thing. So when it comes to God, there's going to be two foundations for drawing the virtual distinction, because that's eventually going to be our answer, is that it's going to be that distinction of reason, reason between all of the various attributes of God. And again, this should be this shouldn't be extremely controversial uh, that it's not a real distinction unless you're unless you're seriously going to tell me that there's a greater distinction between God's attributes than between my attributes, which is utterly ridiculous. <laughs> if you're going to argue that, God, go ahead. Uh, but this really, uh, when properly explained, is one of the least uh, should be at least the least controversial um least controversial uh, disagreement ever. So when we think about the virtual distinction uh, in God, it's going to have two foundations. So first, due to the eminence of God, due to the eminence of his, uh, of his simple perfections, we are going to have to necessarily, uh, in our mind, draw it out between various uh, different attributes. And second, uh, due to the weakness of our intellect, because uh, when we conceive God, we're not going to be able to conceive him in his perfect simplicity. We have to conceive him uh, based on all of these various attributes. And then actually there is there is a, uh, a distinction between uh, two types of virtual distinction. And I'm just going to briefly mention this because I don't think uh, it's going to add too, too much. Um, and thank you, Astro, for defending right now. But um, there's going to be a difference between two types of virtual distinction. There's going to first be the perfectly prescinded. And the second is going to be the imperfectly prescinded. So the perfectly prescinded, when we look at the two concepts we're distinguishing, they, uh, they are totally abstract concepts and they, are, they don't uh, overlap. So if we think about, uh, for example, rationality and animality. Rationality is the specific difference 
that perfects the genus of animality in man. So rationality and animality, we can totally abstract uh, rationality and animality. For example, I could think of rationality as present in angels. Or I could think of animality as present in brutes. So these, these concepts as present in man are perfectly prescinded. So this uh, results in what's called a major virtual distinction. A major virtual distinction. On the second hand, we can have uh, those concepts as present implicitly in the other. So they're kind of mixed together in a more confused manner. So when we look at the notion of being, for example, the notion of being is imperfectly prescinded uh, from the notion of goodness. Because from goodness, implicitly present in goodness is being. We look at truth. Implicitly present in truth is being. We look at being, implicitly present in being is goodness. We look at, uh, in, uh, rash, uh, I, I don't know, intelligibility, or really intelligent, well, I guess you could say uh, something like spirituality. Implicitly present in spirituality is simplicity. Impri implicitly present in simplicity is uh, immortality. We have all of these different concepts are implicitly present in the other concepts. So these are imperfectly presented. And thus these are minor, uh, minor virtual distinctions from each other. So when we look at God, we really have two theses here. First, that uh, the perfections of God are virtually distinct from one another. And second, that they are imperfectly presented. So they are all implicitly contained in the other one and we're able to uh, really um really able to draw the one from the other so there are a few different opinions when it comes to this so first we have uh, on the one extreme the nominalists so the nominalists they think that there is a merely nominal distinction between all of the attributes of God. That is merely uh, in words only. And unfortunately, some people think that this is the Thomistic position, but uh, the nominalist position is condemned by the church. Um, and it is, uh, and I wish I, wish I actually uh, got all of the condemnations because they're pretty good. Because basically what they're describing is what most people think Thomists believe. Uh, they don't. So, um, yeah. The nominalists, they believe in a purely nominal distinction. All of the various attributes of God are mere names. They're mere verbal uh, symbols with uh, no differing uh, conceptual signification. So uh, this is manifestly absurd. And uh, the traditional refutation of this is to point to the fact that if this was true, then God would punish by his mercy and he would uh, pardon by his justice which would be absurd because, um, yeah, uh, you, you don't punish by your mercy and pardon by your justice. Justice is about punishing guilt. Mercy is about, um, is about showing uh, clemency uh, to those who are guilty. And then second, um, they, they also believe that uh, all of the names in God are merely referring to 
uh, God being able to cause it in creatures. And Thomas Aquinas famously refuted this by saying, well, if you think that goodness is merely saying that God causes good in creatures, then since God causes uh, bodies, then we should be able to say that God has a body, um, <laughs> which is a bit of a, it's a funny quip. And then third, uh, this would lead to agnosticism. Um, yeah, which is not fun because we wouldn't be able to know anything because all of our language would just be mere uh, equivocal language. And then on the other hand, we have Gilbert uh, de la Porre. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, that sounds French to me. I'm going to put this in. I'm going to put this in Google Translate and find out how to pronounce this. I've heard it. I know I've heard it pronounced before, too. Gilbert de la Oh, yeah, I'm never pronouncing that. Okay, never mind. Yeah, it's old Gilbert. Oh, did I forget to... Uh, no, I'm still in attributes, yeah. So, yeah, good old Gilbert. Gilbert, uh, he said that the attributes of God were really distinct, and he was condemned for this at Lateran 4, if memory serves me right. Uh, we can't say that the attributes of God are really distinct from each other. That is, the distinction between things... Uh, existing prior to the consideration of our intellect can't say that uh, we're going to get into uh next next uh video on why we can't say that uh but for now we just can't say that and then second we're going to have two attempts or really there's three attempts although i'm not even gonna i didn't even write notes on the third one uh, there's really three attempts for how we're going to uh, go between the nominalists and good old Gilbert. First, there's going to be the attempt of the modal distinction. And this is by, can't think of his name right now. Starts with an M. What is his name? Oh, it was condemned at Reims. Sorry. Modal distinction. Uh, what is his name? Man, this is gonna this is gonna kill me too. Oh, somebody help me in the chat. Somebody help me in the chat. Who who believed in the modal distinction? I, I don't even I don't even have any notes about this. It's just gonna kill me. Modal distinction. Okay, I'm just, I'm just hoping Google helps me. Come on, Google. His name is like on the tip of my tongue right now. I am so annoyed right now. Okay, I guess I guess I'll have to move on unless anybody knows who. No, dang it! I am really mad right now. Oh no! No, not not Henry of Ghent. It's not Henry of Ghent. Dang it! This is gonna kill me for the rest of the stream now. I'm 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 literally ruined right now. Okay, first guy said modal distinction. Uh, nobody really believes that anymore. Uh, Henry of Ghent might have said that too, but he wasn't the famous guy who said that. The second, uh, Scotus, he said that there was a formal distinction. He said between the uh, various uh, formalities of things that there is uh, that there is a distinction. Like for example, uh, we look at creatures. For Scotus, he's going to say that there is a distinction on the part of the thing before the intellect, 
between uh, the various levels of being within man. Uh, he would actually say that this is so for the for rationality and animality in man. And should also be so for the uh, the vegetative um, the vegetative animal and rational life of man. Uh, that there is a formal distinction uh, between these. So it's something uh, on the part of the thing before the consideration of the mind. And the main difference between Scotus and Thomas is going to be the consideration of the mind. Well, you'd remember that. Always think about the consideration of the mind. Is it before? Well, then it's a real distinction. Is it after? Well, then it's not a real distinction, at least for Thomas. So this squarely, uh, for Thomas, uh, no matter how you cut it, he would say that this is just a species of the real distinction. We would be able to critique Scotus as we would uh, good old Gilbert. And uh, that, that's really that's really all it is for um, the, the Thomist uh, critique, at least of Scotus. But they would they would obviously um, uh, this brings up uh, certain debates over the university of being, um, which we would obviously uh, disagree on. But all of that uh, is, again, going to be covered uh, in in later uh, episodes. Really, the but the essence of the Thomas critique is going to be, well, before the consideration of the intellect is going to be something which is uh, necessarily a species of the real distinction, no matter how slight you make it. But for the Thomas, the Thomas, as we've already stated, is going to provide the... Um, the golden mean between extremes. Let's put it like that. The golden mean between extremes. It's going to, on the one hand, uh, not fall into the error of the nominalists in merely thinking of these as names, signifying no type of uh, conceptual distinction or at all. And on the other hand, it's going to go between good old Gilbert, who's going to say that the attributes are really distinct and is going to have that golden mean of an imperfectly presented virtual distinction or minor virtual distinction. So now thinking about the theses, the various theses we're going to be bringing forward. So the proof why it is a distinction of reasoned reasoned is really going to be uh, a bit of a process of, I guess you could say, elimination. Because on the one hand, we know that God is pure act, and that which is uh, pure act is absolutely simple. Since God is pure act, no composition, then therefore God cannot be distinguished in reality. So we've eliminated, on the one hand, good old Gilbert. And on the second hand, we know that the objective concepts of the divine attributes are intrinsically different. Because divine wisdom, divine mercy, divine justice, all of these do not have the same definitions. So they're different. The concepts are different. So we can't uh, believe with the nominalists that it's merely a, uh, a nominal distinction. So we're going to have something with which both is able to preserve the absolute simplicity of God, and on the other hand, preserve the intrinsic difference between our various concepts. 
So on the second hand, let's think about the the prescinding of the attributes. So they are imperfectly prescinded. That is, there's a minor virtual distinction. The uh, really all of the other perfections are implicitly contained in each perfection, because uh, because really of God's uh, status as subsisting being pure act that is because each perfection is going to somehow be related to being therefore in in that it has a certain relation of being it's going to be implicitly contained in all of the others um, so to speak uh, i hope i hope that made sense now lastly uh, at least lastly uh, when we're thinking about the attributes of god we can think about how we distinguish all of these attributes, how we organize them together, why St. Thomas's organization is really the best organization. So some of the uh, some theologians, rather than distinguishing, as St. Thomas does, or as we're going to be getting into, between what's known as the quiescent and the operative attributes of God, they are going to distinguish between the negative and the positive attributes of God. So on the one hand, we have the things that we deny, such as immutability, infinity, simplicity, etc. On the other hand, we have the things that we affirm, such as wisdom, goodness, etc. And St. Thomas is going to say, okay, this is, this is an actual uh, okay distinction we're going to be able to make. It's fine. It's okay. Uh, we're going to be able to make the distinction. <clears throat> but but this isn't the most profound distinction we're going to be able to make because certain attributes expressed in a negative form, such as infinity, are in themselves positive, just as uh, incorporeality in itself denotes spirituality. So incorporeality is a negative name, but it brings forth something which is positive. And immutability expresses stability and we can also think of something like simplicity simplicity is also negative because it's merely uh, saying that god is incomposite so wh when we make this distinction between that which is negative and that which is positive we're really making a distinction uh what's said to be quadnos so we're making a distinction according to us so we're making a distinction on uh the basis of how we name things how we know things on our notions so you can see the problem here, because when the theologian distinguishes, the theologian ought to distinguish based on that which is most profound and essential on, on the uh, uh, and, and best related to the subject at hand on the part of the thing, not really on the part of uh, how we know things. Uh, quad say non quads quad knows. So when it comes to St. Thomas's distinction. St. Thomas's distinction, while admitting that, yes, we can, um, as a sort of a classification system, think about whether something is positive or negative, and that really uh, classifies how we name things rather than really how things are. So on the other hand, uh, St. Thomas, he's going to distinguish between, most broadly speaking, the divine substance, that is the quiescent attributes, and the divine operation. That is the operative attributes. And then within the divine operation, he's going to distinguish between imminent operations, 
virtues residing in operations, and then transient operations. So imminent operations are going to be things like the will and the intellect. Virtues residing in operations, that's going to be things like uh, love, justice, uh, prudence, etc. And then uh, the transient operations are going to be things like creation. So things with, whose effect are outside of God, not within uh, within the divine essence. So uh, lastly, uh, lastly, oh, they're still still arguing. I'm gonna I'm gonna find out who that guy is. It's really annoying me right now. Why I can't think of it's the guy he uh, Durandus Durandus. That's that's his name. Durandus, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Yes, Durandus, William Durandus, French canonist and liturgical writer. Yes, Durandus, that's who it was. That was that was so. I don't know why that took me took me so long. Durandus. Hmm. Okay. That was uh, a stressful, stressful uh, period of time right there. The Rondus. Did I just make it up that he that he was the famous guy with the modal distinction? Maybe I did. No, I didn't. Ha <laughs> ha. I didn't make it up. I knew it. Sorry, I'm, I'm reading a bunch of I'm reading a bunch of stuff about Durandus right now. I should, I should be continuing. Sorry, that that was that was very satisfying. Um, that was uh, that was very satisfying to be able to figure that out. I knew Durandus. Okay, I will continue. See, see, Astro knew it. Astro knew it, and he just wouldn't tell me because he wanted me to figure it out on his own. Okay, so lastly, and this is this is going to be very brief. Uh, when we think about the root of operation in particular, so basically the same thing uh, as we did for the metaphysical essence, but in regards to the operation of God, is there this singular? Um, operative attribute that in a way becomes the the root of God's operation approximately uh, because obviously whatever this is going to be is going to be remotely based in the <clears throat> in God a self-subsisting being are we going to be able to have this sort of proximate root of operation in God and this is this is a disputed question um, and I provided uh, a bunch of resources here if you want to read about this uh, John of St. Thomas and the older Thomas say yes. Uh, others say no. And if you want to get the yes, go to Grenier's um, Thomistic Philosophy. If you want to get the no's, Woodbury's Natural Theology, Lagrange's Commentary, and then his God, Existence, and Attributes. He talks about this. And uh, for historical overview, uh, Brian Carl, uh, he has a article right here that you can read. But personally... I take I take John of St. Thomas's position because uh, in, in a lot of later Thomists, I think, uh, do not give 
due attention to the position because they act as if the the uh, divine. This is called the divine nature. The operation in particular is called the divine nature. They act like the divine nature is uh, what they're talking about uh, is equal to the divine essence, uh, the metaphysical essence for them, which is wrong. They're distinguishing the two. Um, and, and then also later, Thomas do uh, overstate their case with the historical pedigree of their view. It actually was the popular view in the 17th century. Uh, for example, I actually think, and I think um, Carl proves this, is somebody like Banez, uh didn't disagree with John of St. Thomas. Um, and and other other figures are exactly the same. They don't they don't disagree with with what John of St. Thomas is talking about with the root of divine nature. I think the later Thomas do overstate their case with their historical pedigree. That and we have Aristotle on our side. So uh, always remember, remember that. And for those who uh, care enough, uh, it's going to be intellection. Uh, the the divine nature is going to be intellection and it's going to be intellection in second act. That is operative intellection and not intellection in first act. That is the, the, the sort of uh, potency uh, towards intellection. So what, what are the, I have, I have two reasons. Um, and my, my reasons seem very uh, weak because really this is a very, very niche problem. And I didn't put the most time into uh, sitting around for hours a day considering this. So I'm sorry. <laughs> this is this is a very niche problem. Yes. John of St. Thomas says that entitively it's self-subsisting being, operatively it's self-subsisting intellection, and terminatively, ter term terminatively it's self-subsisting love. So true. So based. It seems that Lagrange misrepresents it. That's exactly what I thought, Astro. Exactly what I thought. And you know, I was asking Bassarian about this. I was harassing Bassarian, and he never gave me an answer. Uh, so I will have to harass Bassarian some more about this. Yes, exactly. And then uh, Woodbury seems to do a lot better job, uh, but I don't find his um, I don't find his uh, arguments to be too convincing uh, against him. But but actually, uh, my main reason has to do with the uh, su superiority of the intellect in the uh, operative order. So that that's very vanilla uh, reason. But second, actually, as I thought about it more, um, when we look at the five proofs for the existence of God, and this is actually a point I've never seen anybody bring up. When you look at uh, proofs one through three or ways one through three, it directly refers to the existence really of the self-subsisting being the fourth way uh, in particular talks about the perfection of the self self-subsisting being the fifth way the fifth way is actually based on the operation of god the fifth way is really the one that is able to drag forth a lot of the operative attributes uh with it so we're able to see uh not only that god is a subsisting being in the first three ways directly and the fourth way we directly see that god is self-subsisting beauty intellection uh so on and so forth uh but in the in the fifth way we actually get uh we get into a direct interaction with the operative attributes and the operative attribute that it points to the fifth way is the uh attribute of rationality 
So I think it makes most sense uh, in accordance with the mind of St. Thomas. And uh, I think I'm, I think I'm explaining this wrong because I've been going for an hour and 10 minutes. I'm getting kind of tired, but the fifth way terminates in divine intellection. And I think when we look at the sub treatise within De Deo Uno on the uh, divine operations, that it really takes its term from, um, from divine intellection. And then uh, to continue on, whatever uh what what astro was talking about and i actually did think about this uh when it came to um uh the the terminus of uh we, we can think of god as uh, the I, I don't even i don't even know uh we have metaphysical essence with self-subsisting being we have nature with self-subsisting intellection but actually uh when we look at self self-subsisting love that that gets us a, a bit more it gets us a bit more, uh, how do I put it, a bit more specific within the operation. And we look at the perfection, we look at the perfection of the operation, uh, at least this, the perfection of the virtues of the operation uh, in that in that subcategory where we continue on not only to look at the imminent operations, but the perfection of those, uh, of the faculty, of the imminent faculties in God. Obviously, um, we're, we're going very deep in uh, our, our abilities to even speak right now. But I do think when we go even uh, we go even further, we can look at God as self-subsisting love. And there is this sort of Trinitarian aspect to it, to this as well, where uh, we, we look at the Father uh, in a certain way is self-subsisting being, uh, most clearly represents that. The Son uh, clearly represents uh, as the Son as the uh, terminus of uh, the the sort of infinite fecundity of the intellect. The sun is, uh, in that way, self-subsisting intellection. And the spirit, as the terminus of the infinite fecundity of the divine will, is in a, is in a certain way self-subsisting love. So you do get this Trinitarian uh, aspect to this. And while while this may not be demonstrative, it, it certainly uh, is is quite fitting and quite beautiful. And uh, that at least is good enough for me to uh, agree with John of St. Thomas on this. So that's all I have for you. Uh, I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day, and I hope you consider eventually uh, purchasing the course. I hope this was a good uh, demonstration of what goes on here. So thank you, and God bless.